Just a quick note before we begin this podcast. We usually release the podcast on Thursday. This Thursday is Tishabav, where we're not supposed to study Torah. Of course, the study of Torah brings us great joy. And on the saddest day of the year, we are prohibited from having joyous experiences. And therefore, I am releasing this podcast on Wednesday, a day earlier than we typically release it, in order to not release it on Tishabav. Of course, when Messiah comes, as he does tell us that the sad day of Tishabav will be transitioned, will be transformed into a day of great joy. So we still have some time. It's Wednesday morning, early afternoon. Right now, who knows, maybe Tishabav this year will be canceled, hopefully. But regardless, I'm going to release this a little bit early, and now you know why. And of course, if you want to send me an email, you know my email address, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Parshas Vaishanam begins with a plea. Moshe is continuing his speech to the nation, and he recounts how he engaged in an impassioned plea to get God to rescind to annul his decree, barring Moshe from entering the land. Moshe tells the Jewish nation that he pleaded with God at that time to be able to cross the Jordan and enter the land. The Jewish people right now are situated on the doorstep of the land of Israel, of the land of Canaan. They can see the city of Jericho across the Jordan, and Moshe is disallowed from entering. And he's very desirous of entering the land. But because Moshe sinned with striking the rock as opposed to speaking to it, God decreed that Moshe may not enter the land. And Moshe is telling the nation that he petitioned, that he prayed, that he pleaded to have this decree reversed. And he was unsuccessful. And God said, listen, I'll let you go up the mountain and see the land. You can witness the land in its length and breadth, but you cannot cross the Jordan. Instead, Joshua will lead the nation. Now, Rashi says a few very interesting things here about the nature of Moshe's prayer. The first idea, a very interesting idea, Rashi tells us, that the word prayer typically is tefillah. And the word used over here is chanina, v'eschanan. So Rashi asks the question, why did Moshe use the word va'eschanon as opposed to va'espalel, and I prayed? So Rashi says that the term eschanon connotes getting something for free, even though Moshe, if you think about it, Moshe has more merits than any person in all of history. And you would imagine that Moshe could have come to God and said, listen, okay, I will exchange some of my merits for the rights to cross over the Jordan. And Moshe did not do that. He asked for a freebie. And Rashi tells us that this is a pattern amongst the righteous. They never try to barter with God in exchange for their good deeds to get a benefit, to get a merit. They only ask for freebies. Very interesting. The second idea Rashi tells us is that Hanan, I pleaded, that is a form of prayer. And Rashi invokes the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that there are 10 different words, 10 different verbs of prayer. I remember hearing they used to say that the Eskimos, they have seven words for snow. And I doodled it. Turns out that it's not the proper name. We don't call them Eskimos anymore. They're called Inuits. And it's not seven words for snow. It's more like 40 or 50. There's powdery, and there's the slushy, and there's the icy, and there's the blizzardy, and there's the snowbanks, etc. But as a principle, if you're an expert, if you're a kanyashenti in a given matter, you don't just see the big picture, you don't just see the forest, you see the nuances, you see the subtleties, you see the details. So if your life is building igloos, and you're always surrounded by the frozen tundra, you'll begin to discern different types of snow. Our nation, we are experts in prayer. And not all prayer is the same. There are 10 different types of prayer, 10 different modes of prayer. 
And the kind of mode that, that Moshe employed over here was not tefillah or not any of the other modes of prayer. It was instead va'eschanon, and I pleaded. And Rashi proceeds and tells us something very interesting. The verse says that Moshe pleaded to God, ba'es hai at that time. But the verse does not specify which time Moshe is referring to. At that time can mean a lot of things. It's very ambiguous. So Rashi tells us that the time that has been referenced in Moshe's plea to God was after he conquered the lands of Sichon and Og. So these are the lands that were inhabited, that were settled by the tribe of Ruvain and God and half of Manasseh. So they became annexed to the greater land of Israel. And therefore, Moshe is saying, at that time, after I conquered these lands that became part of the greater land of Israel, well, God said, you can't enter the land. And now I kind of entered the land because the land that I entered has now been annexed, has been appendaged, has been included, incorporated into the land of Israel. So maybe this is proof that the decree was annulled. God said, you cannot enter the land. And I entered the land of Sichon and Og, the Transjordan lands of the land of Israel. So maybe this is a sign that the decree is annulled. So a few very interesting Rashi's here to explain the background of Moshe's plea to God. It wasn't just a random plea. It was a prayer. And what kind of prayer was Veschan on that type of prayer? And it was at a very specific time in the storyline. After the conquest of the land of Sichon and Og, now that Moshe is de facto in the land of Israel, or at least part of the land of Israel, and it's not quite the same intensity of the land of Israel, but it does have some laws. It's after all part of the expanded territory of the land of Israel. So Moshe is saying now, maybe this is proof that the decree was annulled and I could cross over the Jordan and enter the land of Israel proper. So a very interesting observation I want to start off our discussion today here with. Rashi seems perhaps to contradict himself. He starts off by telling us that this is a prayer. And what kind of prayer? The ten modes of prayer. It's Vashanon. It's one of the languages of prayer. That's the first comment in Rashi. And the second comment in Rashi is telling us that the time when this happened was a time that Moshe thought that the decree was annulled. God said you cannot enter the land. Well, you enter the land of Sichon and Od, which is included, which is incorporated into the land of Israel in general. This sounds like an argument that a lawyer would make arguing the case. Hey, from the fact that you allowed me to enter the lands of Sichon and Og, the Transjordan, the East Bank of the Jordan lands, well, that is proof positive that the decree was annulled. So, is it a prayer or is it an argument? If God annulled the decree, you don't need a prayer. Prayer is only if the the decree is still in full force, and you are petitioning God to have God change the decree, to have God annul it, to rescind the decree. But here Moshe is saying that the decree must have been rescinded, because otherwise you would not be allowed to be in the lands of Sichon and Og. So is this a prayer, or is this an argument? Evidently, and this is one of the big ideas we want to talk about today, Prayer is not baseless. Prayer has to have some rationality. You have to make an argument when you pray. Part of prayer, part of Moshe's prayer, part of the mode of prayer that Moshe was invoking here, the one of the ten sorts of prayer, part of it is that there's very good grounds to have the decree officially annulled, because after all, Moshe is now in the land of Israel, at least part of the land of Israel. So we see here that prayer is not just, as they say, spray and pray. It's not just throwing some ideas, oh God, you know, give me this, that, or the other. 
Moshe is substantiating his request with an argument. He's praying, he's petitioning, and he's giving a very good argument why there are, there is some legal grounds, why there's some justification, why there is some substance to his request to be allowed to cross over the Jordan. So this is a new view on the nature of prayer. It's not just you know, the human coming before God and making a request. Moshe is substantiating his request. He is giving some force, some argument, some basis, some rationale to his request by saying, after all, I'm in the lands of Sichon and Oak. Now, there are some other examples of this principle. And I find this to be a very shocking example, the one I'm going to cite, even though there are others. You recall, back in the book of Genesis, so we're now in the final book of the Torah, the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, all the way back at the beginning of this odyssey, of this journey, we had the book of Genesis, and we had the episode of Noah. Noah, there's a flood, there's a big boat. You recall that. Chapter 8, Noah has left the ark. And he brings a sacrifice. And we read a very surprising verse. Chapter 8, verse 21. And God smells the pleasant aroma of Noah's sacrifice. And God says to his heart, I will not further curse the land for man. For the inclination of his heart of man is evil from his youth. And I will not strike all of mankind, all of the living beings as I did. It's a very wordy verse. It's a very problematic verse. It raises all sorts of theological questions. God smelled, God said to his heart. But the big picture is that Noah brought a sacrifice, and the verse tells us that this engendered a change, a change in divine policy. Previously, there was a policy of, or at least there was the feasibility, of the complete destruction of all of the living things, as evidenced by the flood. And now God is saying, I will not do that henceforth, or thenceforth. Now, what is the reason why God changed his policy? And the verse says, I will never again curse the land due to man, for the inclination of the heart of man is evil from his youth. There is a Ramban who offers two explanations. And again, the question is, under what grounds, or what's the explanation of God changing his policy and saying that from now on, I will not destroy all of mankind. It says, Ba'avur ha'adam, because of Adam, because of man. So the Ramban explains two reasons. Number one, when it says Adam, man, it doesn't mean mankind, it means Adam. I will not destroy all of humanity because really it's not their fault. It's Adam's fault. Had Adam not sinned, they would not have corruption. The whole possibility of corruption existing is only as a result of Adam's sin. And therefore, it's really Adam's fault. So why should I blame other humans? And therefore, I will not destroy mankind again. That's the first idea the Ramban says. The second idea is that when it says Adam, it's not Adam, it's mankind. And humans, they start off life in their youth and they get trained to do bad things. And then once they get old, they get entrenched in their ways. And it's it's not their fault, really, because they, they were reared. They were raised to be sinners. And therefore, how can you blame mankind? 
The deck, after all, is stacked against them. They have Sahara, they have an evil inclination. It's so hard to blame mankind. And therefore, God says, he will not destroy the world again because of Adam, because of man. So we're going back to Genesis. And in the aftermath of the flood, Noah brings a sacrifice. And God is so moved by this. He smells the aroma, whatever that means. And God says to his heart, I will not do this again. There will not be a second flood. Why? Because of man. What does that mean? Either because of Adam, it's Adam's fault, or because it's humanity. You know, the, the story of humanity is there's so many sins and there's such corruption from day one. It's so hard to change. It's really hard to blame humanity. And therefore, God says, I will not destroy humanity again. Now, if you read this Ramban, and you understand it, there is an incredible, massive question. The Ramban gave us two explanations as to why God said he will not destroy humanity again. Either because it's Adam's fault, or because humanity, you know, they have the deck stacked against them. Both of those arguments that forestall a future flood, they both existed before the first flood. So, if these reasons, if they're strong enough, if they're sufficient to prevent a second flood, how come they didn't stave off the first flood? God is saying there's an argument to be made to save humanity from an apocalyptic event, the likes of the flood. You can blame Adam, you can blame humanity. There are arguments to say, to present that can exonerate humanity from an apocalyptic flood-like event. And now that Noah's bringing the sacrifice, God is invoking that. This argument, these two arguments, were equally valid and compelling before the flood. There's a shocking realization here. Humanity had arguments, had a case, had a substantial position that could have spared them, that could have prevented the first flood. They could have said, hey, why are you blaming us? It's Adam's fault. Hey, why are you blaming us? After all, we've been raised, we've been reared. The eight Sahara is so powerful, it's hard for us to be successful. Those arguments were present before the flood. Humanity had a get-out-of-jail, a get-out-of-flood card, an ace up their sleeve. That is an argument that saves humanity from destruction. So why were they destroyed? They were destroyed because no one invoked it. No one prayed. No one offered a sacrifice. If you have an exculpating argument... And you don't trigger it, and you don't invoke it, and you don't present it, you don't pray, you don't petition it, you don't file it. You don't get the benefit of it. And when Noah brought the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is a form of prayer, that is the presentation, that is the petitioning, that is the invoking of the arguments that was always there. It was always present. Humanity could have spared itself, and they didn't, because no one prayed. This is the same idea we see here with Moshe. Moshe is saying two things. At this time, at this time, when the war against Sihon and Og happened, the conquest of the land happened, the conquest of the land that was ultimately incorporated into the greater land of Israel happened, that should be sufficient grounds to allow me to enter the land to cross over the Jordan. After all, it must be that the decree was annulled. And that's a prayer. He's presenting it. He's making his case. He's petitioning it because if you don't petition it, no one will do it for you. You want to entreat God. You have an argument. Prayer is to surface that argument, to present it. And if you have an argument that can spare you, that can save you, that can grant you what you want, and you don't present it, you don't file it, you don't file the brief, so to speak, 
you have no one to blame but yourself. Prayer is when you have a case and you present it and you make the argument and you express what you want and you make the pitch. You plead before God and you have an argument to base it upon. That's how you accomplish great things. This is an entirely new way of, of viewing prayer. And again, it's the first two Rashi's in our parsha. Moshe is doing two things. He's doing a prayer and presenting an argument. That is prayer. Prayer is the actualization, is the surfacing of your case. And again, those reasons, the reasons that ultimately prevented a future flood were present before flood number one. And the only reason why the flood was not stopped, was not prevented, was because no one prayed. No one actualized, no one surfaced that argument. No one brought a sacrifice. And therefore, the argument remained unfiled, and the flood happened. So Moshe is praying, and he's making a case. He's pleading his case. And he's making an argument, and the land, and maybe that amounts to having the decree rescinded. Now, obviously, that didn't work. Moshe was not allowed to enter. And we don't know exactly why. Perhaps because the land of Sichon and Od are not really the land of Israel. Some of the agricultural laws that apply to the land of Israel do not apply on the other side of the Jordan. This only became like a de facto land of Israel after Moshe was already in it. It was only after the petition of the tribe of, of Gad, of Gad and Ruvain, and half of Manasseh. Only then did it become the land of Israel, which was already in it. There are reasons why this was not a good argument. But this is not the only argument that Moshe, Moshe makes. A bit further, he says, God, you showed me your greatness your strong hand, there's no one in the heavens and the land who can do as your deeds and as your might. Let me cross over and let me see the land, the good land that's on the other side of the Jordan, the good mountain and the Lebanon, which is Jerusalem, which is the temple. Now, Rashi says something else here. It's a little bit of a nuanced point. You started showing me your might. You started showing me your strong hand. You started showing me your greatness. That means you started showing me the wars against Sihon and Og. Because you started showing me the wars of conquest, show me the other wars, the wars against the 31 kings of Canaan. This is a bit of a sophisticated argument. The first argument that Moshe made was that, well, now that I entered, it must be that the decree was rescinded. This is a little bit of a different argument. Moshe is saying, you started to show me the wars of conquest of Canaan. Let me see all of it. Now, what sort of argument is this? You would argue maybe to the contrary. Because God showed you one thing, he bestowed upon you one goodness, why would that logically lead to mandating that he bestow upon you a second goodness? You know, Jacob is the opposite. When Jacob's about to reunite with his brother, he says, he says, well, God, you gave me so much goodness. Now I'm worried that my stock is depleted. Because Jacob was a recipient of divine goodness, Jacob worried that maybe now he won't get any more. Moshe is seemingly arguing the opposite. Because you showed me some goodness, now you should show me all of it. So the commentaries tell us a very subtle point. God, when he starts something, he finishes it. In fact, we have a principle. When you start a mitzvah, you must finish it. Judah lost his children, the Midrash tells us, because he started saving Joseph, but didn't finish it. If you start a mitzvah, you finish it. And therefore, when God 
started showing Moshe the conquest of the land, it's one mitzvah, and therefore God should finish it. And he should allow Moshe to see all 31 kings being toppled by God. Jacob, he had argued that because God showed him one goodness, therefore maybe he has no merits left to see a second goodness. But that is because those goodnesses are discrete, are different, are separate. So if God gives you one goodness, maybe you have no merits to earn a second goodness. But if God starts to show you one goodness, then Moshe's arguing, just as you tell us, well, if you start a mitzvah to finish it, so too, you should follow that same principle. Once you started to show me the land of Israel being conquered, show me it all. So again, Moshe's praying, and there's an argument. There's some basis. And of course, obviously, God does not agree. And maybe for the same reason, well, it's not the same thing. It doesn't have the same level. It's after all the other lands. It's not the lands of the Canaanite lands. It's other lands. But again, we see that Moshe is not just praying. He's not just petitioning. He is substantiating his prayer with an argument. Now, the Midrash cites another argument. The Midrash says that at that time, Moshe said to God, don't you know how much I toiled, how much I suffered on behalf of the Jewish people, on behalf of them earning faith in you? How much pain did I suffer? How much did I have to endure until the nation accepted the Torah? If I worked so hard, if I engaged so much in the pain of raising this nation, show me some of the benefit. Show me some of the goodness. Show me some of the payoff. I worked so hard. I toiled hard to build this nation. Let me see them shine. Let me see them flourish. Let me see them accomplish and actualize the dream of the conquest of Canaan. And the Midrash tells us that doing otherwise is a violation of the Torah. The Torah tells us that when you have a laborer, you hire someone to work for, you have to pay them on that day. God, Moshe tells God, you hired me to do a job. And that is to raise this nation, to uplift this nation, to infuse this nation with faith, to educate this nation with Torah and mitzvot. I did my job. I want to get paid. And what's the payment? What's the payment of this 40 years of toil? To see them conquering the land. A third argument. Moshe's praying. And Moshe's substantiating his request with an argument. I want to read to you an incredible midrash about this whole back and forth. Midrash says that if you look in the Torah... And in the beginning of the book of Joshua, there are 10 verses that talk about the death of Moshe. And the reason why there are 10 verses that talk about the death of Moshe is because there were 10 decrees on Moshe barring him from entering the land. But, notwithstanding the 10 edicts, decreeing that Moshe will die before the conquest, before the crossover of the Jordan, there was still some wiggle room. Moshe felt like there was still a way to undo this. And Moshe was nonplussed. He was completely unperturbed. And he said, we have a long history here. The Jewish people. How many times did they sin? And they did terrible sins. And every time they sinned, I prayed for them. And right away, God accepted my prayer. And he invokes, the Midrash invokes, the various times that Moshe prayed and saved the nation. I never sinned in my life. If I pray, 
Of course God will accept my prayer. So Moshe thought it was a cinch. This was eminently doable. This was not something to sweat over. And he did not need extreme prayer. And when God saw that Moshe did not engage in prayer, God upped the ante. And God invoked an oath, swearing that Moshe will not enter the land. And now Moshe realizes that this is serious. And Moshe kicks it into high gear. And Moshe makes a circle around him and says, I am not leaving this circle until you annul the decree. And Moshe proceeds to pray. And to pray with great intensity and humility. And he takes off his garments and he puts on sackcloth. And he rolls in ashes. And he stands and he prays and he pleads before God. And the ministry gives a very dramatic account of Moshe's prayer. Moshe prayed and he stormed the heavens and the heavens and the earth were all shaking. And the systems of Genesis, the words of the Midrash, the systems of Genesis were trembling. And the whole world, the heavens and the earth, they were so disturbed by Moshe's prayer, they thought maybe this is a sign of the renewal of the world. God's going to destroy the world and maybe renew it. Moshe's prayer was having such an effect on the cosmic realm that they thought, whatever this means, again, this is all a mystery, they thought that this prayer that's shaking up the entire foundations of the world, this prayer is a sign of this future time in history where the world is going to be ended and renewed. So Moshe is now praying with great intensity. And God is determined, so to speak, to stifle Moshe's prayer. And God makes a decree on all the gates of the heaven. Again, this is all a mystery. This is what the Midrash says. All the heavenly gates and all the heavenly spheres and all the heavenly courts, tribunals, don't accept the, the words, the prayers of Moshe. Don't present the prayers of Moshe before me. And at that time, God, again, this is a very dramatic account and it sounds very, very lofty and esoteric. God is going, so to speak, from gate to gate in heaven, trying to stop Moshe's prayers. But Moshe's prayer was like an unrelenting dagger, stabbing through, so to speak, the heavens, piercing the heavens. So again, we don't know what this means at all. But Moshe's absolutely determined to enter the land. And maybe initially he thought that would be very easy. But he's praying with ferocity, with, with unrelenting, unremitting intensity. This is what's happening at the beginning of our parsha. This is what Moshe is revealing to the nation. And the Midrash tells us that this was not a single solitary, standalone prayer. Moshe prayed 515 distinct prayers to have this decree rescinded. The word Vaeschanan, the gematria of that word is 515. And Moshe's praying 515 times until God tells him to stop. Don't speak to me anymore about this matter. God forbade Moshe from praying anymore. This is an unbelievable thing. Moshe is praying, and he's not stopping. And he reaches a point where God tells him to stop praying. Now, God relented to his request a bit. He says, you can ascend the mountain, you can see the land, but you cannot cross over the Jordan. But ultimately, Moshe's request of crossing the Jordan was denied. 
Now, this is a very interesting idea that Moshe prayed 515 times. What is the nature of these prayers? Is Moshe just praying the same prayer again and again? Or is each prayer different? Is each prayer from a different angle, from a different perspective? As if Moshe is probing and prodding every gate in heaven to try to find an opening to enable this decree to be rescinded. The commentaries tell us that Moshe was willing to enter as a civilian, let Joshua lead the nation into the land. I'll go in as a regular person. I'll be a subordinate to Joshua. Perhaps this is one of the 515 arguments that Moshe posed. But regardless, God tells him to stop. And yes, God partially accedes to Moshe's request. In fact, the Talmud tells us that Moshe was answered. The Talmud, the Book of Baruchos, page 32b, tells us that Moshe's prayer was accepted, which is a very big insight that he did get something out of his prayers. God allows him to see the land from atop the mountain, but ultimately, God says conclusively that Moshe will not cross the river. Now, this whole subject is quite baffling. Moshe is praying with intensity. He is trying to stab the heavens, so to speak, whatever that means. And he fails. And his requests are rebuffed. We have this very elaborate retelling of something that failed. And whenever that happens, we have to ask the question, what is the lesson? What are we supposed to take away from this narrative? Especially because God tells Moshe, it's an unusual thing. Stop praying. We never imagined that God would tell someone to stop praying. So I think there are some amazing lessons over here. Moshe is praying, and each prayer is accompanied with an argument, with a rationale, with a justification. Maybe the the decree is rescinded, or maybe, God, you started showing me something, let me finish it, etc. After 515 unsuccessful prayers, God tells Moshe to stop. If you think about it, there is a stunning implication here. What would have happened had Moshe prayed? What would have happened if Moshe prayed one more prayer, 5.16? It's implied that God would have accepted his position in its entirety and Moshe would have been allowed to cross over the Jordan. And God, for whatever reason, did not want that to happen. And therefore God, in an unprecedented move, said, stop praying. There's an incredible implication here. There is nothing that's not achievable. God tried to get all the gates in heaven stopped and employed all the angels to try to prevent Moshe from achieving his goal. And Moshe would have done it. Moshe would have overcome all of that if he wasn't artificially stopped from praying. Nothing is impossible. The only question is how hard you are willing to push. Moshe would have prayed 515, 516, 5016. Moshe was that determined. A helpful analogy, perhaps, is if there's a treasure buried... Sometimes, if it's very close to the surface, you just need to dig it out. You know, one shovelful's enough. But if it's 10 feet down, you'll need a thousand shovelfuls. But eventually, you'll reach the treasure. And if you give up after 500 shovelfuls of dirt, and you say it's not there, well, you'll never know that the opportunity was always there before you. God prevented Moshe from praying. And we don't really know why. There obviously has to be a reason why Moshe was precluded from entering the land. And there are various suggestions that we find in the literature. 
one idea is that, well, a leader cannot abandon the flock, the captain has to go down with the ship, and the people of the generation of the wilderness, they all died, and Moshe, because he was the leader, has to stay with them. Another version of this is that Moshe is going to ensure that the souls of the generation of the wilderness will merit Olam Abba because Moshe will be there, he'll be with them. And, of course, he's going to merit to enter the land after the resurrection, and he's going to go to Olam Abba, and therefore he will drag those people with him. But the larger point that I want to focus on is that it was doable. And God made ten edicts, and God made almost an unbreakable vow, so to speak, that Moshe cannot enter, and he still could have overcame that, only because he was artificially stopped. And God said, no more prayer. And this is a very powerful lesson for us. We don't have anyone telling us that we have to stop praying. Unless we are artificially stopped, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish. There is no divine decree that we cannot override. Now, there is perhaps a caveat. The Talmud says, that there was an impoverished sage. And he was petitioning God to get out of his plight, out of his dire financial straits. And God says, listen, I I can make you rich, but I'll need to destroy the entire world and recreate it anew. In this world, the way it's currently oriented, there is no way for you to be rich. And the sage asks God, well, okay, tell me how much of my life have I already lived? And God says, well, you've already lived more than 50% of your life. So the sage said to God, okay, if so, we'll just keep it as it is. We don't need to destroy the world and recreate it anew. There are some situations that are so fixed that prayer cannot change it without changing the entire world. But even something which is unchangeable, if you're willing to destroy the world and recreate it anew, you can change it. Maybe you wouldn't want to do it. But there's an incredible takeaway that we find over here with Moshe and in other areas in the Talmud and in our literature Prayer is that powerful, and nothing can prevent it. Nothing can stop it. Nothing is impossible. But point number two is that such accomplishments are only possible if you have the same determination and tenacity as Moshe did. Moshe was relentless. Moshe was unstoppable. He failed once, he failed twice, he failed a hundred times. He failed five hundred times. And he didn't stop. He did not give up. He was relentless. Moshe's tenacity and ferocity knew no limits. If you want to accomplish something great and there are massive obstacles in your way, you can overcome every obstacle. Even if, so to speak, God himself made a decree that you cannot accomplish something, you can overcome that. But you need to have the resilience and the grit and the determination and the indomitable spirit of Moshe. You have to have limitless determination. That's the only way to get something which is impossible done. There's a fascinating psalm. Psalm 30. And this psalm is the song for David that he composed for the inauguration of the temple. We know that David did not merit to build the temple himself. Of course, Solomon did, much to David's disappointment. And yes, he left him everything he needs to do it, the blueprints, the materials, and all the secrets of the temple and the land and the mandate to build it. And even he wrote a psalm for the occasion. So David composed a psalm ahead of time to be read at the time of the inauguration. And if you read it, 
you read the first sentence, okay, this is a psalm for David for the inauguration of the temple. What do you imagine the subject matter will be of the body of the psalm? It'll be maybe about sacrifices or God's presence in our midst, maybe some of the vessels, the menorah, or some of the offerings, the katoras, the high priest. What will a psalm about the inauguration of the temple be all about? And the answer, if you read it, it has nothing apparently to do with the temple. There's nothing in the psalm itself that matches the headline. Aside from the first verse, there's nothing in the body of the text of the psalm that is in any way related to the temple or to the inauguration of the temple. The whole focus is about David's triumph over his enemies and all the challenges he had to overcome and how God saved him and God prevented him from falling and God healed him. What does this have to do with the inauguration of the temple? So the great Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski, the head of the Slabatka Yeshiva, and my great-grandfather of blessed memory, he wrote an essay about this question. And he says, David's life, it was an unending story of struggle. He had enemies from within, enemies from without, crisis after crisis with his family, with his brothers, with Saul, with the Philistines, with his sons. His whole life was embroiled in struggle. And the fact that he was able to partake in the building of the temple, that is something which warrants a reflection on his torrid life. But there's a very deep point over here. The temple is a bastion of holiness. It's a domicile for God in this world. It's not just a building, an edifice. It's a residence, a dwelling place for God in this world. And this is a reflection of a nation worthy of having God in our midst. This is a reflection of a nation at their spiritual peak. Only when a nation is worthy of having God in their midst, only then can they have a temple. So David saw the temple, the building of the temple, as the greatest spiritual accomplishment of the nation. And when he views the temple, what does he see? What does he reflect upon? He reflects on all the battles and all the struggles and all the challenges and the travails. All the wars, all the difficulties that he had to face and that he viewed as the obstacles that prevented him from building the temple. His life was a war. Non-stop battles against hardened enemies. And he viewed the stakes of that battle as the temple. You want to have God in your midst? You want to build a temple for God? What do you need to do to achieve that? You're going to have to overcome immense challenges to do that. And it's going to be like the whole world is engineered to try to prevent you from reaching that, that goal. And it's a battle, nonstop war. The hardships, the distractions, the difficulties, the challenges, the uncertainties, everything will rise up as obstacles to prevent you from achieving that. Why do such few people achieve great things? It's not because no one wants to change the world. No one wants to improve the destiny of humanity. Everyone wants to do that. Not everyone. Most people want to do that. The reason why few people do it is because few people are up to the task, up to what it demands of a person. David is telling us, what did it take to build this temple? All those hardships, all those difficulties, all those challenges, all those conflicts, all that was standing in my way, preventing me from building the temple. The inauguration of the temple is a direct byproduct, says David, of all his 
tribulations, and travails. This is what he was fighting against. This is what he was fighting for all along. And he viewed it as a battle over the temple. His life mission was to build a nation and to prepare for the temple. And everything was part of the war. And he came ready to fight and to batter through the resistance. And he starts off, God, you lifted me up and you did not let my enemies rejoice over me. Those enemies, why did, why did David have enemies? The internal enemies, the external enemies. David faced innumerable enemies in his life. Those were all the impediments to building the temple. And those challenges were not just incidental to his journey. The essence of David's journey to arriving at the temple were these challenges. We're not used to thinking about our goals, our mission in life as a war. But this is David's attitude when it came to building the temple. And this is Moshe's attitude when it came to petitioning God to cross over the Jordan. And of course, had Moshe done that, had Moshe crossed over the Jordan, he would have built the temple and he would have brought about Messiah. But we read the psalm about the building of the temple every morning. And we revisit the ferocious, the tenacious battles of David. And what were his battles all about? They were about the great goal of building the temple. Nothing is impossible. A single person can change the entire world. A single person could be the Abraham of their generation, the Moshe of their generation, the Messiah of their generation. What does it take to do it? Read our parsha. 515 arguments and prayer and stabbing the heavens, piercing the heavens. That's what it takes. A lifetime of conflict and war and struggle of David. That's what it takes. It's, it's doable. Nothing is impossible. But you need that sort of determination and commitment. And all great accomplishments, all great achievements are the product of this sort of ferocious determination. This week, of course, we mark Tishbuf. Tishbuf always falls out in Parsha's Vaishanan. And of course, Messiah, this is the individual who is responsible in the task of transforming Tishbuf into a festival, changing the world, building the temple. How does one person do that? Moshe shows us. Moshe was artificially stopped. Yes, it was doable, but he was artificially stopped after 515 prayers. One more, he would have pushed it past the finish line. Unless someone is stopped, nothing is undoable. We have a tradition that one person with sufficient determination and commitment can bring about redemption, Messiah, the temple, and fixing the whole world. All it takes is one person. And what really prevents it is the willpower and the determination and the grit and resilience in overcoming every challenge and doing it. Now, listen, I, I, I don't know if we can expect that we will be the Messiah. I'm not asking that of you. But if you think about it, gun to your head, God forbid, what can you accomplish? And of course, it's not practical always to think about it in those terms. But it is enlightening to know where the bottleneck that's preventing us from accomplishing great things, where does that lie? It lies in our willpower, in our grit, in our perseverance, in our determination to do whatever it takes. 500 plus prayers, probing every angle, checking every heavenly door. Moshe shows us the way. David shows us the way. If you want to accomplish great things, they are doable. 
but are you willing to put in the work? That is the lesson of our parsha. And this is a very powerful and topical point as we engage with the festival, the sad festival of Tishabav. May we merit to witness the building of the temple and the restoration of the Davidic monarchy speedily in our days. Now, last week, I had to bolt before we had the question. It wasn't really such a big deal. I had gotten a message that my daughter, who was coming back from camp, the bus was arriving, and I thought someone else would pick her up, but I had to pick her up, so I had to really rush through the end of last week's Parsha podcast, and I don't want to shortchange you. So I'm going to make it up for you. I'm going to give you two questions this week. These are not such concrete questions. They're more like intriguing questions. Moshe is told, you cannot cross over the Jordan. But climb upon the mountain and see the land and see all the elements of the land. This idea of Moshe not seeing the land physically, but seeing it with his eyes visually, this is an idea that appears three times in the Torah. It appears, of course, at the very end when it actually happens. It appears now and appeared earlier in the book of Numbers. Moshe climbs the mountain. In each of these three places, the mountain has a different name. Fascinating. And he sees the land. Now, of course, Moshe has to climb a mountain because you cannot just see unless you go to a higher vantage point. How else are you going to see over the obstructions? But it got me thinking, there are a select amount of events in the Torah that occur on mountaintops. And many of them you could say, well, they happen to happen on mountaintops. The landing of Noah's boat, the binding of Isaac, Jacob's dream when he has the ladder, he sees the ladder of the angels going up and down, the Sinai revelation. Bilaam's blessing, which he wanted to curse, but he blessed them. Moshe's death, Moshe's burial. Aaron's death, Aaron's burial. And Moshe witnessing the land, seeing it. Maybe there are some more that I hadn't thought of. But this is an intriguing question. It's not a concrete question. It's not a problematic question. What is the significance of the events of the Torah that we're told specifically happened on mountaintops. What is the lesson or what is the unique similarity between all the various events that happen on mountaintops? An interesting question to ponder, an intriguing question to think about. Question number one. Question number two, to make up for last week, when I shortchanged you, we're going to give you an extra question. An EQ, it's like IQ, There's the intelligent quotient and there's the emotional intelligence. The extra question from last week. Moshe is told that you cannot go into the land, but you can see it. You cannot traverse the Jordan, but you could see the entire land. There was one other time in the Torah that I can think of where a people were told You can see, 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 see. You can see it all, but you cannot go there. The sign of revelation, the nation saw. They saw the sound. They saw the fire. They saw the smoke. They saw the experience with their eyes, but they cannot go there. And this is a repeating theme in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, where the nation is told repeatedly, you cannot go there. There are fences. You'll die if you go there, etc. It seems to me that there is some sort of similarity. The nation's limitations that Sinai, you could see, but you cannot go. That's the same as Moshe's limitations in the land. What is the significance of the overlap between the nation's limitations at Sinai? You could see, but you cannot go. And Moshe's limitations in entering the land. It's an intriguing question to think about to ponder. And it's there to make up for last week. And I appreciate your time. And I hope you have a safe and uh, meaningful and easy fast. Hopefully it won't be a fast. Messiah comes 
in the next couple of hours, we can avoid fasting. But may we all merit to witness the rebuilding of the temple and the mending and the fixing and the remedying of the flaws born about by exile. May we have an inspiring and uplifting Tishabov, and of course, a wonderful Shabbos, the Shabbos of Nachamu, of comfort. May we all be comforted. And please, God, with help, we might talk again next week. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbeatgmail.com. And our website for our organization, Torch, is torchweb.org. If you want to see some of the stuff that we have ongoing in our organization, in the various programs that we do, but of course, send me an email with a question, with a comment, with some feedback. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.